So Matthew chapter 11, verse 16 is where we'll start. A uh, couple questions to plan in your mind as, as we allow Jesus to teach us about how to live with other people, uh, particularly those who reject us or those who refuse to listen to us, those who will not celebrate what we wish they would celebrate with us, uh, those for whom the good news is irrelevant, they think. Um, a lot of the Gospels spend time showing you Jesus in conflict. Um, and I don't think we pay attention to the percentage of time that we see Jesus. We know he gets it the last week, but what happened in the last week was, was just the culmination of what happened for three years. Uh, it was Martin Luther who said that the straw pricking the tender skin of the newborn infant Jesus was indicative of the life of suffering that he was going to have. Um, so, you know, we can, we can kind of learn how to suffer from Jesus. Um, he, he did it better than we do, obviously, but we can at least learn the model, you know, learn some goals when it comes to suffering. Fascinating text here. Let me read just the opening verses. I, I want you to think about it. Think, Try to think what he's saying, then I'll... Then I'll tell you what he's saying. But I, I want you to try see if you can catch what he's saying here. Verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, and they said he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. What's he saying about this generation to whom he's speaking? What's the problem he's illustrating with them? They're just oblivious to what's going on. They're just li living their life, and they're not aware that the Son of Man is right there, you know, in their in their midst. We played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. So we'll sing a dirge, <laughs> and you won't mourn. He came, you know, being aesthetic, eating locust and honey, wearing animal skin living in the desert. He was probably 80 pounds soaking wet because he never ate. But he didn't like him. Here comes the Son of Man who is um, hanging out with people and having a good time, eating lots of meals with people. And you don't like him. What do you think he's saying to them? I think he was real cynical. <laughs> well, Are y'all aware of the fickleness of human nature? <laughs> Are you aware at how hard it is to be satisfied? How hard it is to be content? You know, I throw a party and you don't want to party. So I say, okay, let's go to the funeral. And you don't want to do that one either. Um, it, by the way, and you see that verse 17 should be presented in your text like a piece of poetry or a song. It was a children's song. Um, so he's saying, you know, I can't say, none of us can satisfy you. You don't want to sing and dance. You don't want to mourn. 
You don't want a happy preacher. You don't want a sad preacher. None of us, we can't satisfy you. So he's acknowledging a very human condition. One of these days in retirement, I'm going to write a book on contentment. And the reason is, go Google that. You will not find Christian books, or very few, uh, on contentment. Uh, There was one written by a Puritan author in the 17th century. And, you know, we need some books on contentment, satisfaction. People in this culture, you know, we need a new wife, new husband, new spouse, new church, new preacher, new president. The list goes on. If I just change, if I just, if I, I need some different music, if I can move to a different neighborhood. You know, one of the things the Benedictine monks taught me, they take three vows if you become a Benedictine monk. One of them is stability. Now, when I first encountered that, what I thought they meant was, and they do mean this, by the way, but what I thought they meant completely was, you know, if you take a vow to become a monk in this monastery, like the Basilica of Belmont Abbey, yeah, you're going to be push, pushing up daisies in that cemetery when the time comes. Uh, in Benedictinism, they, they are a cloistered order. You, you, you vow to a particular monastery, you will die at that monastery unless there's some really extreme situations. Um, but then they taught me the spirituality of that. The spirituality of that vow of stability. Because what they're fighting is, I mean, think about it. You are part of that group till you die. You meet with them in the Benedictine tradition, it varies, but you meet with them four four times a day for prayer. You take your meals together. Uh, You live, you have your your room, your cell. You know, in in, Belmont, they run a, a college. But, you know, I remember first time I went and retreated at a monastery. The first morning that that bell started ringing at 5 a.m., it was okay. I kind of enthusiastically rolled out of my bed and went to prayer. Now, one time I was in a Cistercian monastery. They started at 3.15 because the Bible says, seven times a day, O Lord, I praise thee. Um, the Benedictines are more moderate. They'll say, get your other three in on your time. But in the, in the Cistercian, they're the rigorous. They gather seven times a day. In order to do that, 3, 3.15, is first prayer time. You know, and I did that for a few days, you know, and I was really glad I could roll out of my bed, literally walk 25 feet and be in the, in the church. Well, you know, by about the third day, I didn't like that bell anymore. <laughs> you know, I, it was, I was a volunteer, so I didn't have to get up and go do that. I wasn't part of the monastery or pledged to the monastery. The vow of stability says this, and it served me well in my life. I, I don't do it well, but it served me well, that if you can't find God where you're at right now in life, chances are you can't find God anywhere. If you need new music, new preacher, new church, new city, new spouse, new job, and then things are going to be good, that's a problem. And that's the American culture, which, by the way, that's why since the 1990s, there's been a resurgence, even among Protestants, of Benedictine spirituality. Because that vow of stability, that, say, that vow that says, in Christ I should be at rest. In Christ I have all I need. In Christ, 
I'm sufficient. I don't have to add anything to that. Um, uh, Teresa of Avila said, God alone is enough. Well, our culture is as far away from that as possible. We're never happy. We're never content. We're never satisfied. You know, back when I was young, we had three TV channels. That would not satisfy anybody in this culture today. <laughs> um, and we make ourselves miserable because of it. You know, uh, suffering is mandatory. Misery is optional. I hope you know that. You know, we will suffer, but, you know, you, you can decide on your level of misery there. Um, so the, the, I'm so glad when I was a college-age student and then since then, those monks taught me about the vow of stability because they just said, I mean, can you imagine? And I've eaten with them in their common dining hall. You're, institutionalized food wears thin on me after about three days. They've been, I, I know I've got monks that I'm still friends with at the Abbey who are in their 60th year of being part of that monastery. I would have gotten so tired of that food. <laughs> but but they, they seek a... And that's why, by the way, maybe, we should do this, they pray before their meal and after their meal. They give thanks for that. Because if they don't stay in that posture, they'd get real tired of it real fast. But, you know, we just are never happy. And Jesus, again, knows human nature. Yeah, we played a flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and, and y'all say he has a demon. The Son of Man, uh, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. They say, look at him, he's a glutton and a drunkard, or the King James says wine bibber. A drunkard and a wine bibber. Yeah, he didn't get drunk on grape juice. Um, he was a glutton and a drunkard. Well, he didn't get drunk, but it was wine. Um, I'm sure he was moderate. But uh, because he was partying and hanging out with people like tax collectors and sinners. But then notice the concluding summarizing phrase. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So look at the ministry of John the Baptist. Look at the ministry of the Son of Man. It bore fruit. It bore the kind of fruit that God wanted. So therefore, it's the culture that's crazy. It's the culture that rejected them that is crazy. And it's dissatisfaction. Jesus said, what do you want? What would you, if you, what, what, what do you want God to do for you? You've had John the Baptist, now you've had me. Um, and you're, you're still not happy. You're still miserable. Um, yeah, I want to write that book on contentment one of these days. Um, because particularly in this culture, Christians don't even see that as, they don't see discontentment as sinful. You know, discontentment means says God, discontentment says, God, I'm not grateful for what you've given me. Therefore, let me give you my wish list so that you can give me what I want. Um, that, that's not a good place to be spiritually. By the way, another thing the, the Benedictine monks taught me, one, another one of their vows, and I'll tell you the third vow, which I didn't do much with, but the second vow um, um, is a vow of, of submission. Now, practically in the life of the monastery, just like stability, you, you live there till you die, in the monastery, you, you submit to the abbot. 
That's the person that the monastery has elected to be the head. You submit to the abbot. Um, but then the monk's fight taught me it's deeper than that. And I, I've been grateful for this over my life. Um, the reason you submit to the abbot, because they would say the same thing we say, our ultimate loyalty is to God. Our ultimate submission is to God. Well, what the monks would tell me is, um, that's true. But you got to practice submission somewhere. If you live your whole life getting only what you want, if you live your whole life only trying to get what you want, you need to practice submission. You know, that helped me when, when I was United Methodist and the bishop, well, particularly when the bishop said, go to Franklin, North Carolina. And I said, do what and where? I would had to submit to him. Actually, it was a her at that point. I had to submit to her after I got a map out and figured out where Franklin, North Carolina was. I submitted to her. And once I got there, just it wasn't my United Methodist background, but my Benedictine background that said um, valve stability. Yeah, I wasn't sure God was in Franklin, North Carolina. They had no Krispy Kreme. They had no Papa John's. They, the list went on and on and on. And it was the longest two years of my life living in Franklin, North Carolina. Um, but I had to submit, or I chose I chose to submit, and I chose to try to find God. Oh, that's a bizarre place. I'm going to write that book one of these days. Hope you're not from Franklin. It's unique. It's a unique place. Um, yeah, uh, they opened a Shawnee's there, and the day it opened, there were three wrecks, people trying to get into that place. And I went home, and I said, Tammy, I don't know if I can do this. I mean, it, it, yeah. We were just on a different pace when I went to Franklin, North Carolina. But it was, the, it was that stability... That vow of stability said, I will find God in whatever my situation in life is. You know, there's, you, you look at, you know, think about how mobi- mobile our life is today. So different from 100 years ago. We're always, you know, hooking up our trailer and trying to find happy land somewhere. And, you know, we need to check that tendency in us. Um, yeah, we need to check that tendency. And God told me again that this weekend because I lost my cable uh, reception. I had, I, for literally less than 24 hours, I had no television. And I, sometimes I deprogram with something mindless on TV, and that was hard. But, you know, sometimes we need to. Yeah. That's why, by the way, the season of Lent, one of the things we do is fast. Now, it doesn't have to be fasting from food. What we should fast from is whatever might be too important in your life. Something that's beginning to take the place of God. Um, you know, some people need to fast from internet use. Some, need to, maybe some people need to fast from gossiping. Uh, I fast from ordering books. <laughs> and it's hard. I just love to see that Amazon package laying on my porch. <laughs> But during Lent, so I'll order a lot in the next couple of days. But during Lent, I fast. I mean, you need to decide. Any, anytime something is oppressive or obsessive or domin, domineering in your life, it's not God. It's not God. When you have to have that next fix, whether it's ordering a book or going to play golf or watching football, or the list goes on and on. That's why it's very individual what we choose to fast from. Fasting from cho- chocolate is no issue for me because I don't care much for chocolate. 
You know, I mean, it, it doesn't work unless you're, you're trying to break the hold that something other than God has on your life. So that, that, that's, that's why we fast, to learn to be content with God. Content with God. Anyway, this is just a very... Jesus is, is... He would not understand the term, but Jesus is a good psychologist. He knows human nature is very fickle. You know, um, sometimes I look at our culture historically... Um, another one of my idiosyncrasies, I've always loved presidential history. So when I started the first grade, I'd already memorized all the presidents in order, up to Linda Baines Johnson, who was president at that time. Um, I love presidential history. Sometimes it amazes me. We, ha- we elect this person, then we elect this person. You know, John Wesley supposedly said people would ru- rather run from east to west than stop in the middle. I'm still baffled that we walked away from George, the first one, George Bush, and the victory in, you know, Desert Storm, and elected somebody almost diametrically opposed to him. You know, that, that, that tells us something about our culture. And then we'll go back the other direction. And, yeah, we've got to learn to just... Just be content. God alone is enough. Now, you know, the other stuff, that's why in the Bible you have fasting and feasting. You do know that, right? Look in the Hebrew Bible. Times of fasting, times of feasting. You fast so that nothing has control over you but God. But then you feast to make sure you remember the goodness of God's gifts to us. So we should, you know, God's given us so many good gifts so we should be grateful, and it's nothing wrong using them. It's nothing wrong receiving them. Don't make them into an idol. That's why you have that, that cycle in biblical literature, fasting, feasting, fasting, feasting. We've got to learn how to do both. We, this culture knows how to feast. That's it. You know, um, I know somebody I heard speak years ago here in High Point who worked for an organization that worked with drug addiction, and she was from a... Christian tradition that did not man did not demand teetotalism, did not demand that they had to abstain from alcohol. But she said, I heard this 30-some years ago here in Apple, she said she chose, because she worked with addicts, she said she chose to abstain from alcohol because our culture is so addictive. We don't know how to do anything in moderation. And we pretty much don't. Three TV channels, I don't know how many TV channels we got now. Um, I've, I've, yeah, I mean, we're such an addictive culture. That's, that's part of our human sin nature. And, you know, that's why anything that's oppressive, obsessive, or domineering is probably not God. That's, that's the way the enemy works. Um, yeah, there's a quotation from C.S. Lewis, screw tape letters, the devil speaking. He says, he's, and of course, he hate, the devil hates God. The devil says that... Um, you know, God wants children that he can love, but we, the devil and the demons, we want cattle that we can lead to the slaughter. Yeah, God gives us freedoms and good gifts, and yeah, and we just turn it into, into idols. So I think this is a great passage, and people look at it and apply it to your life and it starts becoming real. Yeah, we don't want to, we don't, we, we're just, we, nothing contends, we're not content.
Um, but watch this now. So he's talking about how all of you, we can't make you happy. You won't listen. You won't listen because what we're offering you, the good news, we should be the great news or the phenomenal news of Jesus Christ. That's not enough. So then, move on. Jesus knew what it was. The world around him would look at him and think he was a terrible failure. Give you an example. He's going to give you an example. Verse 20. Then he began, after he just told you this little thing about discontentment, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. This, this, these three cities are called the Evangelical Triangle. Capernaum, which was his home base during his ministry. All these are in a small area on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum is right on the sea. That was his headquarters as an adult when his ministry. But the evangelical triangle is right up there. It's Capernaum, Bethsaida, and Chorazin. That was, it's called the evangelical uh, triangle because that's where he spent 80% of his ministry in those three cities. Now, I know we Americans don't do much with geography, but that's significant. That's where he spent 80% of his ministry. Uh, I love Jerusalem, but I really love being on the Sea of Galilee, particularly up there. Today, Capernaum's ruins, Chorazim is ruins, and Bethsaida is ruins. Amazing ruins. You feel like you look up and see Jesus walking down, but they're ruins today. Now, I want you to hear what Jesus says about him. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, 80% of his ministry, because they did not repent. They probably said, wow, when they saw his um, mighty works. Verse 21, Jesus speaking, woe to you, doom to you, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon. Any of you with me during the Elijah study? Where's Jezebel from? Tyre and Sidon. That, that's part of the Phoenician coast. Those were Baal worshipers. Those, those were the relatives of Jezebel. And here Jesus is saying, you know, woe to Chorazim, woe to Bethsaida. He's, he will include Capernaum in this. If the mighty works I had done there had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. We use the ashes on Wednesday, by the way. That's a symbol of us understanding that we have to live a life of repentance because we keep turning toward idols and we have to keep turning away from them. So yeah, we have to lead a life of repentance, which just means turning back to God, away from the gods that we make. So he's saying that, you know, if I'd have done... What I did in these good Jewish towns on the Sea of Galilee, if I'd done them in those pagan cities, they would have responded better. Verse 22, but I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Now, this is one of those places, don't make too much of it, because we, we, we did that for a while and this got a little weird. This is one of those places where we think Jesus is implying that there'll be degrees of punishment for the ungodly. Think Dante's hell, nine levels. And um, so it appears there'll be degrees of punishment, just like in some way there's rewards, different rewards for godly. 
but there's degrees of her punishment. Uh, but I tell you, it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon. He was not winning friends among the Jews this day. It'll be, it'll be better, more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, by the way, part of what that says is, and this should scare you as you sit in a Bible study, we will be judged according to the light we have received. The more you know, the more Bibles you read and ignore, the more churches you pass by and never worship, the more people who have witnessed to you, the, 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 the harsher you be held to account. You know, if that worries you in the book of James, it says no one should be a teacher because of how hard, harsh we're going to be held to account. We will be judged according to the light we receive. You know, you can't plead ignorance. You know, Tyre and Sidon, they could maybe plead ignorance. Uh, Chorazin sure couldn't. Beit Sadis sure couldn't. Capernaum is where he lived for those three years. They, they, they can't plead ignorance. Uh, so it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for those pagan Gentile cities of Tyre and Sidon than few. And you, Capernaum, that's a third of the three cities. Will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. Um, yeah, that's, that, that's, 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 those are the people who house Jesus. You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done where? The epitome of a wicked city. And you, Capernaum, will, be, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until the, the city of Sodom would still be there. It would not have been destroyed. Verse 24, but I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you, Capernaum. And that's where he lived. That's where he did most of his ministry. Now, don't look ahead yet because it's going to be fascinating where Jesus is going to take this, where Jesus is going to take us. Um, you know, this is not the Jesus meek and mild who loves everybody and affirms everybody no matter what you do or how you live or what your lifestyle is. Yeah, that, I don't know where that Jesus comes from. That's not the Jesus we encounter in the New Testament. He has some standards. He has some, he has some convictions. Um, and, you know, he, he, he's, he's not a power of positive thinking preacher. You know, and, you know, maybe only one of the comforts I get about a culture that's rapidly declining in the Christian faith is maybe people don't show up. Maybe they don't show up because they get it. They don't want to hear that something's demanded of you. If you're going to follow me, you've got to deny yourself. Pick up your cross, instrument of execution, daily and follow me. Uh, I'm not sure that's the case for the culture around us, because of what I've watched in 38 years, when I entered the ministry, most of what I felt from the culture was apathy, indifference. And now what I feel is a degree of hostility toward us. But yeah, we, you know, because we, we, we can't just affirm everybody with everything that they do. Jesus said, wait till he gets a hold of the um, Pharisees in chapter 23. There's a whole list of woes. He lays on those Pharisees. So he's laid this heart, heavy stuff on you. And um, those people, if those people in Chorazim and Bethsaida and Capernaum had been more like us, they'd have probably said, well, Jesus, you should have done a better job. 
You should have done a better job preaching. You should have done a better job leading. You didn't use PowerPoint. You had the wrong music. Because, of course, in our world, it's never our fault. Somebody else is always responsible for the way we act or the way we respond. Um, So, Jesus is going to let you know he's not the one that's failed. And he's going to let you know that those who follow him aren't failures either. I mean, culture will tell you you're just wrong, mad, bigoted, narrow-minded. Jesus says he's not a failure and we're not a failure even if every city we're in refuses to receive the message and repent and turn from idols to God. He'll say we're not a failure. And that's why we get to this amazing text, which is probably familiar, at least the last half is very familiar to you. Look where he takes us now. Look, he he, kind of turns. Well, watch what he does. He turns from the people that he is judging. He's going to turn to God first and pray. You're going to hear a prayer from Jesus. And then he's going to turn to his followers. He's going to turn to us. Because part of it is, how do we live in this culture? Jesus over and over says, if they did it to me, they're going to do it to you. So he's going to turn from the people he's judging, turn to God and pray, and then he's going to turn to us to make sure we, we, we know how to respond in a culture that refuses us. So look at verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared. He actually prays. We know that because he says, I thank you, Father. So he prays. Good thing to do. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. What's he saying there? What's he declaring there about the reception or the lack of the reception of truth? Who hears and who don't? Give me some characteristics of a little child. I don't know about purity. My kids are... Yeah, they were human when they popped out of my wife. And, um, but they're teachable. They, they, they are faithful. I'll never forget when I was at Montlew Avenue, I learned my lesson quick. First time I put a chalice in front of a child and said, the blood of Christ shed for you, they weren't about to put their bread in that cup. <laughs> so now under a certain age, I will put the cup in front of them and I'll say, remember how much God loves you. Children can be faithful. When I said that was the blood of Christ, y'all think it's grape juice only. That child knew it was something beyond grape juice when I said this was the blood of Christ. So they can be faithful. Um, they don't have the, and some of you heard this term, at School of Methodism. They don't have the hermeneutic of suspicion. The person who did a wonderful job of talking about how we use this book compared to how the culture uses it, he, she mentioned, which we've known this for a long time, this culture has a hermeneutic, hermeneutic of suspicion. A hermeneutic is the glasses you use to read something. It's the way you read or receive or understand. I come to this book, listening for the voice of God. I come to this book knowing that it's truth. If I had a hermeneutic of suspicion, which is what our culture has, I'd come to this book looking for the mistakes, looking for the contradictions, looking for how it's wrong, looking how I can argue out of, you out of this. That's a hermeneutic of suspicion. That's a modern issue. 
And by the way, those of you, what she was saying on Saturday was John Wesley did not have a hermeneutic of suspicion. He believed this stuff. He knew her the voice of God. Our culture has, I mean, you know, I run across people who want me to convince them of the Christian faith, and they act like they're the only ones that's ever. I, I'm just, after 2,000 years, I'm tired of their arguments. I mean, we've answered them over and over and over. But somebody out there, they, all of a sudden, they, they learn one of those arguments. You know, who did Adam's sons marry? Get over it. We've t- we've been, people have come at us for that. You know, that's a hermeneutic of suspicion. You know, if, if you read that story, and rather than hearing the truth of God in that story, you, you wonder about well, who, if the first family was the first family and these boys were born, who did they marry? Were, who were the other... Just, I don't know. I don't know. And I don't really care. And if that's what you're looking for, you're reading the Bible with a weird set of glasses. But, um, yeah, it's the wise. What does he say? The wise and the understanding who can be the spiritual fools. Um, if there's been a hermeneutic of suspicion in the Christian faith, it's been a little, and I don't buy into this, and I can argue the other way, there's been a little suspicion of education. We Methodists um, built the first school in the United States. Of course, we called it Cokesbury College. It lasted a year, and then it burnt down, and we all said that, that was the will of God. That school is going to mess our preachers up. Um, you know, again, I want to balance view. Education... One of my favorite Wesley quotes, by the way, let us unite those two things so long divided. Vital piety, and I'll explain that, and knowledge. Vital piety, heartwarming, heart-feeling, heartfelt, experience with God, an experiential faith where you talk with Him, you walk with Him, you know He's real. That's vital piety. Let's unite the two so long divided. Vital piety, and he said knowledge or wisdom or education. Yeah, I'd, You know, Jesus said you should love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul. Your heart, soul, mind, mind, mind. Love the Lord your God with your mind. You know, being stupid is not a spiritual gift. You know, I sort of grew up in a church that sort of implied that it was. That education would just ruin you, which is why I was never invited back. I've never been invited back to preach in the church in which I was raised. Uh, my family was told when I when I went to Duke Divinity School, I had become apostate, which could have happened easily at Duke Divinity School, but it doesn't have to happen. It doesn't have to happen. Well, I, they'd done. My family said that about my Catholic college because they just. The, the statues freaked them out. But, yeah, let us unite the two so long divided. Vital piety and knowledge. So, um, yeah, the wise and the, and the understanding, they may be the greatest spiritual fools out there, but the children are the ones that will get it. Those with hum- humility and faithfulness, they'll get it. So he's praying. Verse 26, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. This is God's plan. This is the way God knew it would happen. This is the way God's fine with it happening. Some people are going to choose hell. Some people aren't. I don't understand all of God's sovereign will, but... Um, He'll let you walk away from God. If you don't want God to bother you, at some point He'll say, okay, I won't bother you for eternity, and that's called hell. Uh, But that's part of God's gracious will. All things have been handed over to me, Jesus says. 
Imagine the Jewish audience, and it's going to get worse. Imagine the Jewish audience hearing this. All things, he's praying to his father, all things have been handed over to me by my father. Remember at the Great Commission, Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Yeah, strong, strong statement of the divinity of Jesus here. The unity of the Father with the Son. All things have been handed over to me by the Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So great intimacy between the Father and the Son. And no one comes to Christ unless they allow the Holy Spirit to draw them. The Spirit is wooing you. The Spirit is calling you. The Spirit is loving on you. The Spirit's trying to draw you into saving faith in Jesus Christ. But hard hearts can get in the way of that. Um, now watch this. Now this is the passage you know, but I want you to look at it in a different way. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Uh, in the prayer book, tradition book, common prayer, these are called some of God's comfortable words. Um, and they are comfortable. They bring comfort and strength to us. But that part's obvious. Make sure you hear what he's saying. He's Jewish. If you don't know Jesus is Jewish, well, that's one of the first things, first place you need to start. Come to me. There wasn't a rabbi that's ever lived that said that. A rabbi would say, go to God. There's not a rabbi that's ever lived that said, follow me. They'd say, follow the law and follow God. So when Jesus says, come to me, and he's going to make it more explicit, come to me if you're Jewish, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, you know, I, 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 I kind of tell people to go to Jesus and go to God if they need comfort. Jesus is the only one that can say, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest or refreshment or recreation for your soul. Again, your rest and recreation does not come from doing nothing. You can, you'll wake up just as tired as you went to bed. Refreshment and recreation comes from doing those things that bring refreshment and recreation, like spending time in the presence of Christ, knowing how to be refreshed. Yeah, just taking a day off and doing nothing, that won't solve the problem. you got to do some things to help you refresh, recreate, reboot. Take my yoke upon you. Um, take my yoke. Now, here's the yoke in the Bible. Use of the word yoke. What is yoke? I spent a little bit of time on a farm, but not much. What's the yoke? Yeah, put some together. It's like the wooden harness that would put a couple oxen or humans, if you don't have oxen, uh, under that, that harness, that yoke, in order to pull the plow. So he says, take my yoke upon you. You know, when you go back to the Bible and find the use of the word yoke, particularly in Midrash, Particularly in the rabbinic writings, the word yoke is used a lot. You know what it always references? The law of God, the Torah. He's saying, come to me, and I will sort of 
be your new law. You know, they actually, in rabbinic thought, they'll talk about the burden of the yoke of the law. 613 laws in Judaism. The, the burden of the law. So Jesus is saying, not only come to me, but I've got my yoke that, that I want you to pick up. And notice why he says, unlike the 613 laws, my yoke, my yoke is, is easy. Um, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Here, do you notice the three verbs here? Come, take, learn. Some people come and stop. Some people take the yoke, the way of life. Again, what does the farmer with his... What, what does he use the yoke for? What's he doing to those oxen? He's guiding them. Yeah, some people come to Christ and give Jesus his sins. They don't take his yoke upon them. They don't want Jesus interfering with their lifestyle. They don't want Jesus to lead them. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. We, we never stop learning. Learn from me. And again, he's not saying learn from the law of God. Learn from Moses. He's saying learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. It's a Jewish audience hearing this. My yoke is easy. And part of it is, part of the new covenant is because of the work of the Holy Spirit, he helps us live his yoke. We, you know, that was the problem in the old covenant, Old Testament. You were given the law, but you weren't given the power to fulfill it. Now, because of the work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and grace, we are given power to live it. That's why he says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So, you go to Chorazim, you go to Bethsaida, you go to Capernaum, you offer them the gospel, you offer them the witness, you show him, them how to live. But at the end of the day, just go to bed and rest. Rest in him. I'm so glad. There, there, there should never be a doubt in any Christian's mind. I don't make Christians. I witness it takes the Holy Spirit to make Christians. I can't convert anybody. It takes the Holy Spirit to convert. I just witness. I witness in front of them. Mother Teresa one time said, I, I'm called to be faithful, not successful. I think about Jud Adoniram Judson, that famous Baptist missionary who went to Burma in the early years of the uh, 1800s as a missionary. It was a terrible place to go. He lost two wives and seven children as a result of living in Burma. He did not see his first he did not see God make his first convert through the min as a result of the ministry of Adonai Judson for six years. I think I'd have gone back home probably. Now, after that period, uh, a flourishing, eventually a flourishing Christian um, presence came about there in Burma. But Adonai Judson, early 1800s, left the United States. Yeah, two wives died while he was there. Six of his 13 or something children died living there. And he did not see any fruit to his labor for the first six years. So somehow you just be faithful. You know, I, I'm glad there's one Messiah per universe. It's not me. Um, John Wesley one time said something like, evangelism is just seconding the work of the Holy Spirit. I, you know, I, I, try to get, I try to help people get in a place that maybe the Holy Spirit can get through to them. Yeah, we help people become disciples after Jesus makes Christians out of them. You know, um, the, go into all the world and make disciples. 
teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Yeah, I can't make Christians. You can't make Christians. And they may just throw us out on our rear end. We just get up, dust ourselves off, and, and we never forget how to rest in Jesus. You know, the, it's, it's really important how, it's really important the state of mind you're in when you, as they used to say in the old days, when you would pillow your, when you pillow your head at night, you should be able to rest in Christ, leave the results to Him. Again, that's part of our control addiction. Sometimes we have such a control addiction, I can't leave the results to him because if you would just listen to me, I'd tell you how to do it. But, you know, my, my kids don't listen to me most of the time. And, you know, I, I, my control addiction says I've got to fix them, direct them, solve all of their problems. But we're not called to success. We're called to faithfulness. Now, we should see success. Hopefully, you know, it took six years for Ida and Iram Judson to see some fruit to his ministry. So it's not like we're opposed to fruit, but we know where the fruit comes from. It's not our efforts. So that's why you do this stuff. You go through this controversy. You make all these enemies, um, but then you know how to rest in him. Questions, comments. It's an amazing text. Um, yeah.